You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702. 702. Bongani Bingwa. Wrapping up your day. And it's nine minutes after five o'clock. Of course, it gives me great pleasure now uh, to be welcoming on the line uh, the former leader of the Democratic Alliance and the former ambassador to Argentina, Tony Leon, on the line from Cape Town. Good afternoon to you and thank you for your time. Thank you very much, Bongani. Good afternoon to you and the listeners. Now, you've written this piece in The Times in which, though I'm sure it was intended to be tongue-in-cheek, makes a point. Oh, for the Mbeki days. Yes, I wrote the piece. I'm not responsible for the headline. You was asked at the Times. But, yeah, because, you know, when Bill Clinton came to our parliament in 1997, he had a sit-down tea with the opposition leaders, of whom I was one at the time, for some years afterward, and he said... You know, the only thing in life and politics is compared to what? And I was the leader of the opposition when Mbeki was president, and we had a lot of disagreements, and there was a lot to disagree about. But on the central issues, which he actually tackled in his Oliver Tambo centenary lecture on Friday night, yes, you know, it's a different country, really, because uh, Mbeki, to the best of my knowledge, was not personally corrupt. He certainly didn't run away from any criminal charges, not there were any penny against him. And although we can, you know, and we should never forget his denialism and the deaths caused around it because of HIV AIDS, the fact is that, you know, we had a fiscus that was properly run it. We had a 22% GDP debt. We're now hitting, you know, 60% ceiling. And we had 4.5%, GDP growth. And now we're on 0.7 as of last Wednesday. So, you know, in, in that sense, he was a person and he had administration of fiscal rectitude and some competence. And now, certainly, we're in a different uh, era. We're in an era of criminality and deep embedded corruption. Absolutely, because, you know, whatever fights you had with Mbeki, they were about, as you say, policy, principle and politics and not whether or not he might be a criminal. Oh, absolutely. Look, um, uh, that is exactly correct. That's what I wrote about today. You know, we can go back uh, to the very ugly stain on Parliament and his administration, the arms deal, where there were some hugely improper measures meted out to prevent that from happening. And you simply read Andrew Feinstein or Rainer Tullyard's books, who were contemporaneous witnesses and MPs involved in that in the scope. It was a very ugly episode. So you can say, well, you know, it's metastasized under his watch. But going to, you know, there, there was no suggestion that there were a couple of families or one or two criminals, um, as Jacques Poe's book suggests, who actually manipulated the state of the presidency to their own criminal self-enrichment, which is the current apparent situation. And embedded in my piece, I said, you know, Jacques Poe's allegations are extraordinary about Zuma being a tax delinquent and Jacob Zuma uh, basically being on the payroll of Roy Mudley in an undisclosed amount of a million rand a month. And I said, you know, if he had a shred of self-respect, he would sue Jacques Poe and Tothberg publisher for millions. And he won't because he'll then be cross-examined. Yeah. And that, in a way, tells you everything. And there was no suggestion without, you know, I'm not lionizing him, Becky. I had some major disagreements with him. But that was completely absent from the presidency and the body politic yeah. then, as opposed to where we are now. And that was 
implicit and, and explicit in what he was saying on Friday night. Of course, I mean, you disagreed on, on many issues. You mentioned now the AIDS denialism, there was Zimbabwe, there was economy, yes. uh, and any number of things uh, one could pick out. But of course, as you mentioned also, the economy was growing at around uh, 5%. Unemployment was under 20%. South Africa even had a voice on international platforms. And it's easy to look at all the allegations swirling around this president and make the issues about the personality when, in fact, all of these things have a domino's effect on where the country finds itself. Exactly right. And, uh, you know, I I was with some business people last night in Johannesburg and we were just talking about that. It's quite difficult to turn around the ship of state, but it's by no means impossible. And I suppose what Mbeki was doing in his rather crab-like fashion, because he never calls things exactly by their name and what they are, was to send a very stark warning to his own party and saying, if you don't right-size the ship on the 16th of December or in the days that follow it, then you will actually self-destruct this organization, the ANC, after 106 years. And I I thought, you know, what was missing, of course, from his piece, it was a bit introspective because he was talking about the ANC. I asked the question in my article, well, what happens to the country if that act of self-destruction occurs? You know, what's the collateral damage that he didn't deal with? But maybe that's also an implication to be addressed on another time. I have to ask you this then. Why has the opposition failed to grasp this moment when the ANC is really at its nadir? Our politics still favour that party. Oh, I think that's true. And, you know, I was reading a, a piece recently by Franz Cronier of the Institute of Race Relations, who I don't know where the figure came from, but they're quite a research-oriented organisation, suggesting that even under Zuma, the ANC might, you know, get together 58% of the vote. Yes, well, they yes. got 54% last year in the local elections. So I, I, I think it has a very long-standing loyalty. We saw on Monday in the Black Monday event that race is a dividing line in this country. But what we don't know is what will happen, for example, if the Zumaites prevail in December, if there's another split in the ANC. That, that is uh, something that might or might not be on the cards. Every time there's been a significant schism in that party, going right back to 1999 with the formation of the UDM and then COPE in 2007 and then the EFF in, 2000, or in 2004 and then the EFF in 2009, They've taken a chunk of the ANC vote, anywhere between 3% and 7%. So, you know, if, if that was to be one of the consequences, well, then I would think the ANC would be in deep trouble. But going to your question, which I think is a very good one, why haven't they seized the moment? Look, I suppose they've tried. I mean, the, I, I read a figure that the DA spent 10 million rand in legal actions to get uh, Zuma's charges reinstated, which they have been broadly successful of that SCA judgment uh, of Judge Nafsa two weeks ago. And they keep moving motions of no confidence mm. in Parliament. With, with the, each one fails, but the last one was quite instructive because about 20 to 25% yep. of the ANC MPs votes against them. So there are only so many, I speak with 13 years' experience of leading the opposition, there are only so many tools in the opposition toolkit yep. uh, that you can bring especially in our kind of very party-centric democracy. It doesn't depend on individual MPs, it depends on parties. And I guess the answer you would get from them, and I certainly don't speak for them these days, is to say, look, if the ANC is prepared to go along with all Zuma's predations and every further outrageous act, 
then we've got to wait until 2019 to put it to rights, I, uh, by which, of course, stage Zuma will no longer be the head of the ANC. But it also has to do with how the opposition parties themselves are perceived by the electorate. And if I think about the perceptions of the Democratic Alliance, for example, that persist even to this day, looking back, do you regret your campaigns around being hatful and fight back? No, I think they were very appropriate to the era. I mean, bear in mind, I inherited a seven-member of Parliament party. I mean, the IFP, which at that stage had 10% of the vote. My party had only 1.7%. And our first job and the National Party were had 80 more seats than us. In one election, we went from seven seats to 38 and from being the fifth party to the second party. And I think there was a lot to be concerned about then in terms of corruption and in terms of crime and in terms of issues of governance, and we gave it its voice, but we didn't do so in a racial way. And in fact, I don't know of other than by perceptions, and perceptions do count a lot of a single racist utterance I ever made or any MP in my party. I think we've had some recent examples long since I left the DA where there have been far more racially sensitive remarks made by, or, uh, by, by, by certain leading members of the party, which didn't happen on my watch. So, no, I don't. And uh, the truth is, I'm not sure if the uh, DA and DP before it had not been as robust as we made it to be then, that there would be an opposition movement in South Africa today. I mean, if you go back to that time, sorry, one more point, you know, Nelson Mandela, whom I had a very close and good relationship with, despite being on the other side of the aisle, invited me to join his cabinet. And, and that was a really difficult decision to turn down, turn him down. But if we'd done that and gone into government, which he wanted us to do very vigorously, well, you wouldn't be talking about an independent opposition here at all because other yeah. than the DA, every other opposition party from 94 thereafter has gone backwards, except perhaps the EFF, which is the latest opposition movement, but they've only been in the ring for the last uh, four years or so. Where does all of this leave your party? Because, I mean, if you look at your immediate successes, Helen Ziller has effectively been silenced by the DA. Uh, Musi Maimane is generally considered to be overshadowed as a political force by the likes of Julius Malema. Well, look, I, I think you've also got to look at what the, uh, the, only, uh, the, the only judge in politics is your results. I mean, you, know, you can make a lot of noise, you can get a lot of attention, but what does the ballot box say? The fact is that, the, and I really, you know, have, I'm, I don't put myself out as a spokesman for the DA, but uh, they govern today, uh, admittedly, with some support from other opposition parties, four of the five major cities in the country, and that's happened under my Marnie's watch. Uh, you can say the, the momentum was building. You can say, well, Jacob Zuma, you know, was busy imploding last year, all that constitutional court judgment and so yeah. on. But the fact is that a party led by a man called Maimani now governs four major metros. It has a quarter of the popular support in South Africa, uh, which is probably more than, well, it is more than it's ever had. And it's, it's, it's not a, a one-day spectacle. It's been built over time by different leaders in different times. I mean, Musi's big challenge is going to be 2019. You know, he's talked about an alternative government now. Well, you've got to deliver on that. will be part of it. Well, so we'll see. Let's let's take it under advisement, as they say in America. Do you think the NC would hand over power peacefully? The I think that's a very, very good question. They did with various degrees of reluctance in the cities they lost. But, you know, losing Johannesburg is a big deal, but losing South Africa is an enormity for them. 
And there's a lot of concern about the IEC. I've been noticing a lot of sort of background noise around that. And we've seen in Kenya what happens when you don't have a free and fair election and you have a judiciary that's cowed, which I think is, is very unfortunate because that looked a month ago as it was going in the right direction. Now it's going in the wrong direction. I don't want to say South Africa's the same as Kenya or vice versa. We're not. But um, there's, uh, we've never been in this movie before. I mean, there has the last time there was an in-power or an, a parliamentary change of power in this country was in 1948 because 1994, of course, the entire system changed. Yeah. And that was, 1948 was confined entirely to white politics. So South Africa's actually never had a national, democratic, peaceful transfer of power because the numbers have never stacked up. If they do in 2019, it's going to be a very uh, interesting moment. I must hope for the best, but as they say, you know, hope for the best, but prepare for the worst. All right. Tony Leon there, the former leader of the Democratic Alliance and, of course, uh, former ambassador to Argentina on the line from Cape Town. What's your response to his comments?